New Testament Character Studies. At the website, there's a series of 50 Old Testament Character Studies. Now we're going to begin New Testament Studies. There are scores of them, and we're going to cover scores of them. Major characters with easily recognizable names, like Jesus, Joseph, Mary, Paul, Peter, and also minor characters, some who may not be familiar to all, like Malchus, Onesimus, Joanna. I hope that as we look at these men and women, some were men and women of faith, others were far from it. There's much to learn. I hope that our study gives us all a lot to think about, enriches our Bible study, and perhaps you're even listening to this in the morning, and this will give you some thoughts to carry you through the day. Of all the characters we could look at, I feel quite unworthy to examine the life of Jesus Christ, but this must be done. The series must begin with Jesus Christ, because he's not just the major character of the New Testament, he's the central figure of the entire scriptures, and of all history. Jesus Christ. We know more about Jesus than any other person in the Bible. No figure in the Bible has 90 continuous chapters devoted to him. Matthew 1, all the way to Acts 1. And no other person appears as frequently in scripture. Jesus' name or names appear over 1,200 times. Certainly no one in human history has touched as many lives as Jesus Christ. Now, of course, he left us no diary or autobiography. He left us, in fact, nothing in writing at all. But his followers were entrusted with his life-saving message, and they have relayed to us what we need to know. In this podcast, we'll begin by looking at the birth and family of Jesus. Once we've set the stage, we'll examine his appearance and his character. In the third part, we'll take a look at his ministry and message. And in the final part, his trek from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem and what this means for us, after which we'll draw some conclusions. Let's begin with his name. Jesus, or Yeshua, Hebrew and Aramaic, meaning God saves or salvation, was born in the late 1st century B.C. He was named after Joshua, the commander and leader of God's people who took them into the promised land. In fact, in Greek, the word for Jesus and the word for Joshua is Jesus. It's the same. Interestingly, when we look at Jesus' family, we see that five of the ten most common names of the time were given to members of his family. Names like Joseph and Mary, very common at the time, even Jesus. Certainly being named Yeshua, God saves, was an appropriate name for the Lord. Another name for Jesus Christ was Emmanuel, or God with us. We find this in Matthew one twenty three, and it's taken from Isaiah 7 and 8. Well, both of these epithets, Yeshua and Immanuel, denote his deity. The unexpected entrance of deity into humanity, what theologians call the incarnation, 
the physical embodiment of God, all took place in fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus was born in the time of Herod the Great. Although he grew up in Galilee, that's the northern part of Palestine, his birth town was Bethlehem in the south. Significantly, Bethlehem was the birthplace of Jesus' ancestor David, who was certainly the most revered of all Jewish kings. Jesus was probably born no later than 6 BC. Let me tell you why. This is a deduction based first on the known date of the death of Herod the Great in 4 BC. That was recorded by Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews, a first century Jewish writer, statesman, and uh, historian. Second, in conjunction with the biblical account of Herod's attempt to do away with the infant Jesus in Matthew 2. Now, in that account, Herod felt threatened by a potential usurper to his throne. When he learns from gift-bearing magi from the east of the birth of someone they refer to as king of the Jews. But, hey, Herod, Herod wants to be king of the Jews. But these magi have come to worship and honor this one born king of the Jews. It's in Matthew 2. Herod was known for many bad things. Paranoia, brutality, ruthlessness. In fact, he executed three of his sons. He killed two of his brothers-in-law, an uncle, many rabbis, a high priest, even his favorite wife, Mariamne. All these he executed. One of them in particular, the 17-year-old Aristobulus, was declared high priest in 37. Herod drowned him in 36. The numbers go backwards because we're, we're still in B.C. Apparently Aristobulus was too good-looking and Herod was afraid he would have influence. So it's no surprise that this king ordered all male children, two years of age or younger, in and around Bethlehem to be killed once he met the Magi. And since Herod died in 4 B.C., it follows that Jesus was probably born no later than 6 B.C. Jesus' parents were Joseph, or in Hebrew, Yosef, who's named after the great patriarch who dominates Genesis 37 to 50. Mary, or Mariam, in the Gospel of Luke, was named after Moses' sister, who was a powerful leader and prophetess. And these were very common names at the turn of the millennium. Again and again, the New Testament refers to Jesus' brothers and even his sisters, though they remain anonymous. Let me read from Matthew 13, 55. I'll read from 54 to 57. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. So his brothers' names were James, or Yaakov, Joseph, or Yosef, Judah, or Judas, or Yehuda, and Simon, or Shimon, or Shimon. But the text mentions all of his sisters as well. Now, the way I read that is at least three. 
because it would sound funny to say all his sisters if he only had two or one. So this indicates a large family. Now, the, the idea that his brothers were cousins or Joseph's children by a previous marriage arose in the second century, apparently in an attempt to preserve the virginity of Mary, but that kind of reading the text is not natural. The natural reading of passages like Matthew one twenty-five is that Mary began sexual relations with Joseph once Jesus was born. And this most easily explains the birth of seven or more of Jesus' siblings. So much for his family. How about his vocation? Uh, often people ask me, if he's the Savior of the world, I mean, I mean, if everyone's spiritual eternity is hanging in the balance, why did he wait until he was in his 30s before launching his ministry? Well, of course, as Christians, we believe the cross reached both forward and backward in time, covering the sins of everyone who puts his or her faith in God. So, in one sense, nothing was lost by waiting. But there are some clues in the scriptures that will help us to answer this question of why he delayed. The last time Joseph, Jesus' father, is mentioned is during the family visit to Jerusalem in Luke 2. Scholars seem to be agreed that Joseph died before Jesus' public ministry was launched. And if Joseph died perhaps around 20 A.D., he would have left behind a family of at least nine. That's Mary plus eight or more children. And so it would have fallen on Jesus as eldest male to assume leadership of the family. It would have been a dereliction of duty, an action that would ultimately disqualify his character and claims if he had left the family to fend for themselves, especially in Jewish culture. In time, of course, James, the second-born male, Jesus' younger brother, uh, James made the transition to head up the family. Now, there are more reasons why he may have waited before beginning his ministry. He knew from Scripture that a forerunner would come. The herald was prophesied in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. So, not until John the Baptist presented the Messiah did Jesus commence his special work. Here's another thing to consider. Jesus was righteous. The Bible urges us to defend the cause of the widow in many passages, like Deuteronomy 10.18. So if Mary was widowed, Jesus had a special obligation, especially if Jesus' father Joseph died when the Lord was still in his teens. And here's another thing to think about. Would he have really succeeded in his important work if he began preaching and doing miracles at, say, age 17? Who would follow a 17-year-old Messiah? Nothing against 17-year-olds. It just would have been quite early, in a time when, if you weren't 40 yet, you were considered quite young. If Jesus followed in his father's vocational footsteps, then he too would have labored as a builder, a tecton. Uh, that Greek word I find in Mark 6.3. A tecton is someone who works with wood or stone, like a stonemason. So there's reason to believe that from boyhood until his early 30s, Jesus worked as a carpenter or a stonemason. In addition to enabling him to provide for the family, this uh, experience would have helped him to be relatable to the common man. It also would help build strength of character and his bodies as well through consistent work. Yes, his mission was urgent, but he didn't rush to begin. And we always see that Jesus proceeded with a keen sense of timing. 
perhaps John's gospel bring this this out most uh, from John two four, seven six eight thirty. Um, 820, 1223, 27, 31, 71, 1930. Got it? I'll try to put it in the notes. But John really makes it clear he wasn't rushed. Well, he didn't marry either. Is it wrong to marry? Well, of course not. The Bible assumes that most of us will marry. Jesus and Paul both advocated remaining single, however, if possible, as an effective path of service to God. Well, they understood that only a few had the gift of celibacy. In Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, they concede that. It's only a gift. But neither Jesus nor Paul taught there was anything inherently sinful or unclean about sex and marriage. Now, Jesus knew, and he often predicted, he would die in the cause of his mission. So if he had married, he would have left behind another widow and fatherless children. Maybe that's why he never married. Or... It may be that his intention was not to establish a dynasty. Now, just imagine the elitism that could be spawned by membership in the family of God. You know, my great-great-grandfather was God in the flesh. Maybe he didn't want that to happen. Let's talk now about Jesus' appearance and his character. We've looked at his birth and family and the fact that he remained single and delayed his beginning of his ministry till he was around 30, probably 32 or so. Let's talk about appearance. We, ha- we have no photographs of Jesus. Now, I think he was probably typical in appearance for a male Jew. He would have worn a beard. In the first century, the Jews trimmed their beards a bit, so it probably, probably wasn't long. Jesus was a Middle Easterner, so his skin would have been dark. And since he led a life of manual labor, followed by a three-year ministry, and he walked everywhere, he he would have been muscular and fit. And one thing I know for sure, he wasn't Anglo-Saxon. He didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes, so so much for those pictures. I don't think he was exceptionally tall either. Let me tell you why. Average height for a man at this time was under five and a half feet tall. Do you remember in the arrest in Gethsemane, Judas guides the party and points out the culprit. You can find this in Mark 14. It's nighttime. And in fact, there's a full moon because this is around the time of the Passover. But it doesn't seem to be obvious to the high priest and his detachment of guards which person they're supposed to arrest. So Judas helps them by signaling with a kiss. He kisses the suspect. Now, if Jesus were six feet tall, All Judas would have to say is, it's a tall guy by the tree. And if he were blue-eyed, blonde, well, (laughs) even less need for a kiss. Point is, Jesus blended in. He could have been mistaken for someone else. In all likelihood, his appearance was average. And you say, but I, I heard my preacher tell me he was ugly. He wasn't anything to look at. Well, Isaiah 53, that prophecy of the suffering Messiah, it's in 52.13-53.12, talks about the suffering Messiah. We don't know when it says he had no beauty that we would desire him. We, we don't know if that's talking about how he looked before he suffered or after they had begun to abuse him. So I don't think we can draw uh, much of a conclusion from there. Well, we may know very little about Jesus' appearance, but we know a lot about what he was like in his heart.
You know, the Bible freely records the sins and weaknesses of all its major characters. Think of Abraham's lies, Sarah's meanness, or Rebecca's deceit, David's adultery. Even the, the initial lack of faith on the part of Jesus' own family members, and so on. Yet never is sin attributed to Christ. Even his enemies were unable to convict him of sin. Some said he was a fraud. Others said he was demon-possessed or misrepresented him as making political threats against Romans. Yet none of these charges was substantiated. Could it be that one human perfectly fulfilled God's plan for his life, never sinning? Wow. Well, this is the audacious claim of the New Testament. Jesus had so many strengths, courage, gentleness, service, joy, insight, serenity, and intensity. He was patient. He exhibited an astounding degree of self-control. So, in one sense, no single trait stands out more than any other. His personality shows perfect balance. I like to use an analogy. Think of the sun, how brilliant it is. We've all had the experience of looking up at the sun and and it's hurt. It hurts the eyes. All parts of Jesus' character were dazzlingly impressive. No one ever told me, Wow, Douglas, the top left part of the sun is really bright today. <laughs> Though it is. I mean, the top left part, the top right part, the bottom left, the bottom right, the center. It's because... All parts of the sun are equally bright. We perceive it as a unified whole, which means we're likely to miss some of Jesus' qualities. One that's frequently missed is Jesus' intelligence. He was highly intelligent, not just as a scholar of the Scriptures. We saw that in process even in Luke 2 when he's an adolescent. But he was intelligent as a student of human nature. He had not just IQ, but also what they call EQ, that emotional intelligence quota. So as you read the Gospels, be aware that his mind works brilliantly whenever he's in a tight spot. Well, I think of Matthew 21 and 22. In 21, it's near the end of his life. He comes to the temple courts, and he's challenged by the chief priests and elders. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Do you remember what he said? I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Well, as that little episode ends, he is off the hook. He's not said anything they can use to implicate him in a in a rebellion against the temple or the Romans. or And... And they've actually been put in their place. He doesn't tell them the authority by which he does these things, which obviously is it's from God. But the way he does it, the little comment about John's baptism was brilliant. It was thinking on his feet, just superb. In the next chapter, the Pharisees go out and try to trap him. And his disciples, um, the Pharisees' disciples, come to Jesus with people from King Herod. Well, not the one who died in 4 B.C. This is uh, another Herod. Let me read. Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the word of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. 
Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. I mean, brilliant. His logical mind is truly brilliant. Yet he never bullies others with his intellect. He remains humble in every interaction. Many people miss his intelligence. Another trait we may read right over is his intensity. In the Gospels, we have a picture of how one man can pack so much into a day, how he can keep going even when emotionally spent. His drive was phenomenal, and the New Testament invites those of us who want to follow him to lead zealous and passionate lives. Luke 13, Titus 2, 1 John 2. That's the shape of holiness. We've talked about Jesus' birth and family, his appearance and character. Now, what about his ministry? What about his message? After his baptism and temptation, he embarks on a three-year teaching ministry. Uh, We know it's three years because in John's Gospel, he goes back to Jerusalem after he begins work for three different Passovers in John 2, 6, and 12. So if he began work in 27 or 28 A.D., and that's the implication of Luke 3, then he would have been executed in 30 A.D. Jesus began in Galilee. Uh, He was working among the towns of, well, with today what would be Lebanon and Syria and Jordan and, and Israel and the West Bank. Once the disciples began to understand his identity as the Messiah, he proceeded to Jerusalem, where he came into direct conflict with the religious establishment and was executed. So his ministry included several components, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, teaching, healing, exercising, training the twelve, of course, most important, giving his life for the sins of the world. What about his message? The central message was the kingdom of God. And what does that mean? Well, the day of the Lord, something that had been anticipated by the Jews and foretold by the prophets for centuries. That day of the Lord was dawning even in the present. See, the present world kept going even though the day of the Lord had arrived. There's kind of an overlap between the two ages. So the future messianic age of righteousness breaks into our world. And that means that forgiveness and freedom and, and the abundant life the Messiah brings are available now, not only in the hereafter. Jesus also called his followers to a radical standard of holiness, even higher than that of the old law. I mean, in Matthew 5, he makes this clear. There were certainly standards in the Old Testament, and I know that people have misunderstood. He's not just calling them to obey the Old Testament. He's going well beyond that. In enjoining things and forbidding things, he is changing the rules. So all of us are disciples if we accept his teaching and follow and are willing to learn. And he said we are disciples of his if we hold to his teaching and love one another as he loved us and if we bear fruit that lasts. That's in John eight thirteen and 15. His message. But in another sense, the man is the message because Jesus didn't only point people to the way. 
like he talked about the narrow road in Matthew 7, but he actually is the way, like John 14. We can uh, gain considerable insight into Jesus' life if we pay attention to the distinctive emphases of the Gospels. As I mentioned, John has Jesus returning to Jerusalem for three Passovers. And so that means his ministry lasted several years. Three, some people say four, but I think three is all you can fit into the chronology. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke condense the ministry into a a more narrow framework. Jesus is preaching in the north, in Galilee. And then, after Caesarea Philippi, once Peter understands, or sort of understands, his identity, then Jesus turns south and he walks from Galilee to Judea. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are called the synoptic gospels, begin with them teaching in the north and then he makes his way to the south where he dies. Now of these three gospels, Luke probably is the one that uh, brings out the theme most clearly. And he intensifies the effect through a number of incidental comments and, and narrative connectors. And I'd like you to listen to me I'm going to read a number of passages, all from Luke. And if you've never seen this theme before, I think you'll be intrigued and challenged. Let's think about this. I'm going to begin in Luke 9. This is the, the pivotal chapter. Uh, uh, Peter is, uh, is understanding who Jesus is. Jesus says, we're going to need to uh, deny ourselves and carry our cross and follow him. And as we know, Peter's not very happy. I'm in 928. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure. The Greek word is exodus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Okay? So he's on this mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're talking about his work that he'll be fulfilling in Jerusalem. Now I'm jumping down to verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but as you know, he wasn't welcomed. Why Samaria? Because Samaria is right between Galilee and Judea. He's going south. He's going to Jerusalem. At the end of uh, chapter 9, you know the section about the cost of following Jesus, the, the guy runs up and says, I'll follow you wherever. The sentence begins, 957, as they were walking along the road. See, this is the road south. Then in chapter 10, verse 1, After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was to go. So he's working on his itinerary. And the itinerary, it's, uh, it winds a little bit, but it's more or less direct from Galilee to Jerusalem. Chapter 12, verse 49, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. See, he's talking about his death. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Chapter 13. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching, and as, as he made his way to Jerusalem, someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? 
he's still going to Jerusalem. But he's not he's he's mission minded and he's focused, but he's not forgetting the people around him. He continues to teach. thirteen thirty one. At that time some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, I like this. <laughs> Most brothers like this passage. <laughs> go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. On the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely, no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. He's very aware what awaits him. He understands what will happen at Calvary. And he will not be deflected. Are you easily deflected from your goals? Am I easily thrown off track when I've made a resolution or I've got a plan? I've made a promise. Jesus, is a, he's an incredible model of perseverance, of discipline, of uh, stick-to-itiveness. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together. So Jerusalem is very much on his heart. And that, that's the, uh, the end of chapter 13. In chapter 17, we read, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into the village, ten men who had leprosy met him. So he's making progress. He's closer. He has fewer days left now of ministry, of effective service. And then, you know, he predicts his death a third time in chapter 18, verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem. Now, I know I keep saying they're going down, they're going north to south, but when you go to Jerusalem, you go up because it's way above sea level and uh, it's quite steep. We're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the prophets, about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. And that's certainly something all four Gospels bring out over and over. Even though they're following him, they didn't fully get it. And I think that's there for you and me. Most of you listening to this podcast are Christians. We all have different degrees of insight and experience. And some of us have been Christians for months, some years, some decades. But in a way, we relate to the disciples because we don't get it. We we know we're supposed to go to Jerusalem. We know that's the destination. We know that means sacrifice. Jerusalem was always the place of sacrifice. It's where Abraham took Isaac. It's where the uh, temple was built. It's where Jesus would die. And we, we're like those disciples. Sometimes you and I, come on, be honest, we're a bit thick. I don't quite get it. Uh, later in uh, chapter 18... As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Jericho is its not too far from Jerusalem. It's still a bit of a hike, but he's closing in on his goal. Chapter 19, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And then he tells the parable of the ten minas. I'm in 1911. While they're listening to this, he went on to tell them the parable because he was near Jerusalem, and people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Then farther down, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Now he's getting really close. Uh, the Mount of Olives is that, that mount across the Kidron Valley, where Garden of Gethsemane is. 
It's a, right across the Kidron Valley on the east side of Jerusalem. And uh, from there, I mean, you, you can walk from there to, to the Temple Mount in about half an hour. And then later on in chapter 19, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So now he's, he's gone over the Mount of Olives and he's getting very close uh, to the Kidron Valley. He'll probably be c- crossing on one of the bridges and coming into town. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you in and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Of course, Jesus here is referring to what would happen in 40 years in the Jewish war. In the year 70 AD, Jerusalem and its temple would be destroyed, and that would be the end of formal Judaism. And Jesus is not just predicting it as an academic curiosity. He weeps. He weeps. You know, the early church had a difficult time with the humanity of Christ. Believing he was God was not actually very difficult, if you read the history. But believing that he was human, that he really suffered, and it hurt, and he had emotions, and he got tired... His humanity was more difficult for them to accept. Now, in our time, it's kind of the opposite, isn't it? You know, People say, well, he was a good teacher. He was human, of course, and we have difficulty with his divinity. But originally, in those early centuries, the divinity was easy to, to take. It was the humanity. And all the Gospels show us that Jesus, it wasn't easy. We kind of make excuses. Uh, well, you know, he was the Son of God. He had powers miraculous powers like the Incredibles you know. so for him it was easy yeah well probably for him some things were easier than for us but because of his level he was subjected to so much more pressure such stronger temptation so much more responsibility that I think it, it's just a cop out if we compare ourselves to him and, and think that he had it easy well when he gets to the temple courts he begins to drive out those who are selling and you know when he does that symbolic act. His point wasn't to clean up corruption in the temple. You know, kicking over one table is not going to do that. But he's sending a message to the high priest. He's sending a message to the establishment. And uh, he's clearly on a collision course. And now his time has come. It's nearly come. He's not unwilling to die. He never was, but he wanted to finish his ministry first. And in here it says the chief priest and and others were trying to kill him, but they couldn't find a way to do it yet. And then we know what happens. The Last Supper in Luke 22, and Judas goes out, and it's night, and, and he's arrested in the garden. Jesus went to Jerusalem to die. He knew about the cross. He predicted it specifically as far back as chapter 9 of Luke, and the followers weren't so enthused. We're called to follow him. Luke 9.23, when I was baptized back in 1977, I pretty much knew John 3.16. The only other scripture I knew, I was very much a beginner, was Luke 9.23. And I couldn't have quoted it, but I knew it was in it because our campus minister focused on this one. Can I read it for you? Then he said to them all, 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to lose his life will uh, save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. Ah, so when Jesus goes from Galilee to Jerusalem to die, he's calling us along too. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German uh, minister who opposed Hitler, said when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. We're called to follow him. We're called to surrender our own will. We're called to surrender our comfort. As we make our way to our Jerusalem, we're called to surrender our pride, to surrender our sins. Maybe you're called to a difficult vocation. You're spending years in a profession that is not your first choice. Maybe your work situation is suboptimal or substandard. Maybe it's a family situation that's really hard right now. We understand these things. We're humans. Maybe it's medical. Maybe it's your health. And you say, Lord, it's not fair. My friends seem to be so vigorous, and I'm weighted down with this problem. I think of Paul's thorn in the flesh. You may even be called to die. But, of course, our death is not on the level of comparison with Jesus' death. Death was an integral part of his message. Other prophets died for their messages, but their deaths didn't accomplish deliverance for the people of God. They weren't atoning. Other men and women of faith in the Bible take courageous stands. They suffer, and sometimes they die. They die for their message, but they don't die for us. Still, we are called to die. And I think that's what Luke is showing us. Jesus' long march from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem. Our challenge is to follow the Lord. Am I willing to follow my Lord to Jerusalem? Well, it's time to wrap up. We don't know what he looked like, but we recognize his image in all who are born of God. He left us nothing in writing, and yet he is the word of God. And through his spirit, the New Testament was given to us, a precious gift. What should we do? For following Jesus, we must grow spiritually. Luke 2, learn obedience, Hebrews 5. If we're going to follow him, we're going to have to be tough. We're going to have to make strides to become stronger physically, emotionally, especially as we embrace a schedule that centers around people. We're not called to be reclusive, but we're following our Lord. And even on the way to Calvary, he kept giving. And even on the cross, Luke 23, he forgave his tormentors. We're following Jesus. We need to recharge by spending, spending time with the Father. And this is another great theme in the Gospels. I won't develop it here. But it's from the mountain to the market. The mountain to the market. He goes up to pray, and then he comes down where the people are, and he gives. But eventually, he has to recharge. If we're following Jesus, we must follow him to Jerusalem, to Calvary. He told us he's coming back, yet we don't know when. That means we must strive to live in a state of expectation and preparation. For, as the Lord asked, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Luke 18.8 Thank you for listening to this first podcast in the series. There will be many more. May God use it to help you and me and all of us 
to more closely follow our Lord.